This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So many of you joined our UCSF alumni webinar pop-up series, which started a year ago, and it was on emotional well-being during COVID. This is the first webinar in our second new monthly series on um, continuing current and unfolding issues in coping with the pandemic and beyond. So I welcome you to join the full series. You'll hear about it from the UCSF alumni follow-up email. The COVID, you know, I'm, you might recognize my office. I was here a year ago and to be honest, it all feels very fuzzy. It was a, we didn't know what we were in and we still don't know exactly what we're in for. So this is our new world as it unfolds. The COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating for our whole society, our whole globe. And before I, I move on, I do want to just have a moment of silence for all of us to just sit back, close our eyes, and really have a moment to memorialize all of those who have passed during this pandemic. So we're at a transition point. We're at a bridge of re-entry while we're still battling with COVID outbreaks here and in, and in a terrible way in other countries. How are you feeling? I would like each of you to just check in. What is your level of fatigue, anxiety, hope? How much are you able to feel joy Many of us feel pandemic fatigue at this point from a long period of coping, of staying well, of helping others, being isolated, many sources of grief from losses, unnamed losses. Many of us might have a feeling of burnout, numbness. And what we're gonna focus on is the myriad of mental health issues that we have struggled with, our family members, our friends, our colleagues. There's also a, an anxiety that is lingering that we're calling re-entry anxiety, which is things are changing, we're in another transition point. And we want to acknowledge the grief, the losses, the hope as we go into this new stage. So we're gonna deal with some of these issues in our new monthly webinar. It's the first Thursday of the month 12 to one, and we will discuss lifting this grief and pandemic fatigue so we can embrace this new world, so we can more fully feel joy again, even with the sorrow we feel. In the wake of another murder of a black man. It's, it's another hard day. We know we need to work on on race equity and social equity. None of us can be well without that. So we will discuss in our seminar creating an anti-racist setting and culture in our own clinics, in our own communities, and in our healthcare settings. 
And um, we will touch on that today, but we will have a whole session of that in our webinar. During the fire season, we will talk about the power that we have as healthcare professionals to help mitigate the climate crisis and cope with it. In the fall, we'll talk about strategies to help our youth transition back to school, back to work. So today we're gonna to focus on the mental health impact of our healthcare system. When an event creates distress and disorders in the majority of our population, we can't take an individualistic approach. This is also a pandemic of stress and distress, of compromised well-being and of disorders and normal disorders, normal responses to what we're experiencing. So we need to think about how to help people at their different levels of needs levels of risk, levels of disease. But it's also this period of hope, transition, and change. So that's what we're gonna talk about, individual and systemic resilience and in our healthcare workers, in ourselves. We need to prepare our minds for this new world going forward and support networks for the next disaster. We have experienced communal trauma and it will take systems thinking to move us into communal healing and not going back to business as usual. We need to change our paradigm. We think of preventive care as, you know, we pay for it, we accept it. You go to a doctor to um, prevent physical disease. You do daily behaviors for physical disease, but we don't think about that for mental health. We wanna to shift toward prevention. So today, I'm just so happy to bring you three national experts on the front line of these issues. UCSF faculty, uh, we will hear from Christina Mangurian, professor in psychiatry, our vice chair of diversity and health equity for our department. She is, a, um, during COVID, has championed issues of parenting, particularly women parents who are clinicians or researchers. She'll talk about that report. She has awards for mentoring and the advancement of women in science. And she's helped lead the effort for coping and well-being at UCSF with Margot Pumar, with me, with many of her colleagues. We're also very honored to have Maja jackson Trish today, who has overseen the whole, this whole COPE mental health effort at our institution. Maja is a, a professor in the Department of Psychiatry. She is an assistant vice chancellor and UCSF health executive advisor for diversity, equity, and inclusion. She was a chief mental health officer for a VA network of over 1 million veterans in the US and abroad. She was responsible for their mental health. She also oversaw the VA's mental health response in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina and what she did there was phenomenal. She brought those principles and skills to UCSF and we'll hear about those today. For her role there, she received the Veterans Integrated Service Network Award for Outstanding Leadership. I'm so glad you could join us, Masha. And our third guest today, I'm so happy to have Robert Rodriguez join us. Some of you might remember Robert joined us at the beginning of the pandemic because while being an emergency medicine physician, working full-time in the front lines, he also mounted a large national study on the mental health of emergency care providers. He has several, he has published eight papers during COVID. Don't ask me how that's possible. Um, but he was also appointed during this time to the Biden Transition Committee on COVID. 
And so we will hear about his research on the mental health impact on frontline providers. So I'd like to um, first I'm going to hear from the panel um, one at a time, just briefly about what is resilience? What has the mental health impact been for you, for those around you? And what are your sources of resilience? And so I'm first going to turn to Robert because he can also tell us the profile of mental health from his national surveys. Welcome, Robert. Good to see you again. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me here. As you mentioned, the pandemic has had profound impact on the mental health resilience of of providers, healthcare providers across the board. And we noted early on, very early on, like in February, in the beginning of March, uh, a heaviness, an, uh, an anxiety developing in our frontline providers. And so we undertook several national studies of that, uh, of the effects of the pandemic on the mental health, on the uh, anxiety levels and risk for post-traumatic stress disorder in frontline providers. Um, and that includes nurses, nurses, doctors, um, other emergency department staff. And so we basically um, in, in a number of studies started a longitudinal program to look at the, these effects. And what we found were uh, profound effects on the anxiety levels of pr- providers, not only at work, but also at home. They were bringing a lot of the anxiety effects of the anxiety in the workplace home to their, uh, to their home life. And uh, that really affected their interactions with family members and friends. They were afraid to have close contact with them. They found that the uh, family members and friends were reluctant to have close contact with them as well. Conversely, um, people were doing things like, uh, showering outside before they came into the household, um, and oftentimes staying away in, in hotels, um, during, uh, in between shifts instead of going home. So we found profound effects on the, on the workplace anxiety and home life of the pandemic. We also, uh, measured over time, burnout in a, another one of these studies. And we found that over half of uh, providers had some level of uh, emotional exhaustion and burnout. And over half of them also had at least one uh, risk factor for post-traumatic stress disorder. And using the scale, and, and, and I want to thank you, Alyssa, and, and others for helping us with, with these projects, by the way. Um, we found uh, using one of the, one of a validated scale that uh, approximately 20% of providers were, were at significant risk for post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think that the first step um, <clears throat> From, from my standpoint, or at least from uh, the first step toward resilience is recognizing that the problem exists. And um, 
recognizing that it exists on a national scale and recognizing that it exists personally. And um, I certainly have uh, felt uh, waves of emotional exhaustion throughout the pandemic. And uh, I think that, as you you mentioned, the, the, the issue of stigma it really needs to be destigmatized. We need to we need to recognize that um, these. We need to make it such that providers and everybody can uh, feel honest about about those feelings within themselves, and not afraid to to get help. So that's a a, a, a major point. Such a major point. I think destigmatizing mental health has always been an issue and it couldn't be more emphasized now. And I think people experience everyone is vulnerable to mental distress, mental disorder, having interfere in our relationships, our life, our work, our sleep. And so that helps. But it's more of an opportunity. What are we going to do with that? Thank you so much, Robert. I just uh, admire your, you taking on mental health on these frontline providers so much. You're really, your research is really leading the way. I'd like to turn to Christina. Great. Thanks, thanks so much. And, and yes, thank you, Robert, for sharing uh, that experience with the frontline providers. You know, it really um, echoes a lot of what's known in a lot of these pandemics. And some meta-analyses have been um, done before. Nothing's quite like COVID, but in other kind of um, diseases that really, you know, frontline providers, especially nurses and docs and, and women and caregivers and people who have lower socioeconomic status, um, or um, are at high risk of whatever the disease are or socially isolated, they can be very much at risk. Um, so, and I've definitely found that some in my work too, looking at physician mothers where, you know, 40% of physician moms across the country had evidence of moderate to severe anxiety during COVID, you know? And and I, I think, Alyssa, you were kind of wanting us to talk about what was our own experience, right? And so I think I'm like many of the and, people. The, oh, what were you going to say? Well, before we move on, there was a striking gender difference in Robert's data. And I, I wonder, Robert, if you want to comment on on that. Did it surprise you? What was the, the gender gap in PTSD symptoms? Yes, that that, that is an important point. Thank you for bringing that up, Christina and, and Melissa. We did find that... Um, Gender was female gender was associated with higher risk, significantly higher risk for um, burnout and for risk for post-traumatic stress disorder with odds ratios almost uh, uh, approaching two. In other words, uh, twice as likely uh, to be at risk. Yeah, that's a, a, a very, very important point. Yeah, we had a report from our um caregiver task force that Christina will talk about. And I just felt like crying hearing about it because you hear a statistic, women are more at risk. And we we knew that before the pandemic and now it's, you know, magnified. And then you wonder why and what can we measure to explain that, you know, but it's, there's no mystery here. I mean, when I heard the women testifying about what it was like to be at home and be expected to work and have kids there and uh, that, you know, all of the kind of double burden and these roles, I felt um, I felt like we needed the narrative to understand it and have it fleshed out and, and talk about solutions. And I 
um, I think that we we need to validate what the, that extra burden is and try to ameliorate it. So, Christina, let me hear. Let's go back to kind of what was the impact for you? What were your sources of resilience? And then also what what are these um, you know sources of resilience system um, for women and caregivers and Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this is an area I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. And I think that, you know, we're not quite there yet with equity, both at work or at home. Right. I think that COVID has revealed a lot of inequities and definitely all over the um, news is about the real concern about losing our professional women in the workforce, you know, in, in, in the sciences and across multiple domains. So I, I'm like many of you, right, who might be watching this. I'm, I'm a physician. I had multiple roles at the university. I'm a physician scientist. So I have mentees, people working in my lab. I had my fellows. I had administrative role. I had my patients. And those were all different populations at work that I had to worry about right and make sure they were okay when the pandemic was first hitting and that i could i could manage and making sure i was communicating well but then i was like many of you i'm also a working mom i had an 8 year old i had a 12 year old at home i had a husband i'm normally a the primary breadwinner at home but he completely lost you know was not unable to work i had two elderly parents and two elderly in-laws so i had a lot of people who i was worried about and responsible for um and thankfully you know i've been through rough times in the past like many of you too you know and i think i know that maja is going to go into some of her experience at katrina Um, I think having that experience helped me kind of know I need to build up everything I can so I can stay as strong as I can, because I actually knew that if I stayed strong, that actually would help my kids and help my staff. And um, so that was the right thing to do. So talking about stigma, right, Um, I I will self-disclose, which I haven't so much, you know, in my life before COVID. But, you know, I went to therapy. I took an SSRI it's really helped, you know, like it's helped me to sleep and maintain my well-being as much as I can. I exercise, I spend quality time with the kids outside, even though my work has gone up dramatically. Um, I make sure to carve out an hour every day that I spend just with them and we're outdoors so that I get outdoor time, limit alcohol use, have a regular schedule, and then really prioritize my family, you know, calling. I was really worried about my parents getting isolated so called them a lot um because i was worried about them so we called them every every day <laughs> to make sure they were okay and um and then i set up things you know so that the kids had grandparent time and so there was time that the kids could be with the grandparents but those were things that i did for myself in no means did i do it perfectly um but I did it good enough so that the kids are still, you know, they report being happy, which has been very, very important to me um, uh, throughout this um, as, as it was so painful. I mean, I, I know all of us, um, you know, San Francisco has gone through its different waves, but I think I remember in the beginning, since I trained in New York, it was very painful to watch my brothers and sisters there and at home knowing people like you, Robert, were, on the front lines and so much in in the midst of it, um, you know, really drawn to as as all of us have to use our skills to best help others during that time. That was helpful to me as far as my resilience. Thank you so much, Christina. You've done so much while you've been for others while you've been coping so much at home. Maja, welcome. 
you're on mute. Getting used to Zoom, sorry. I really appreciate everyone's comments and just want to say just a little bit about um, how I cope to add to the discussion. I think that one of the hard things about being in a disaster and a pandemic as a disaster is a sense of powerlessness and uncertainty. And they're real. I mean, you know, that's not imaginary. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen from moment to moment you know, let alone day to day. And we still have a lot of uncertainty, especially with the news about the vaccines and some of the side effects. So now people are even becoming nervous about what appeared to be a solution. So it, it's really, really hard. I guess when I think about resilience, my definition is the capacity to recover uh, from a trauma and heal, which is an ongoing process. So it's not an endpoint; it's an in process kind of thing of keeping yourself as healthy as you can. And a couple of things that I did, in addition to the things that Christina uh, mentioned, was uh, having an online, a very intentional online support group for me. I reached out to friends and they reached out to me and we decided that it was very important for us to get together every week. So as uh, you know, today, every Thursday, there are two close friends who I've known since residency and hadn't actually talked a lot since residency. But we talked together. One lives in Germany, you know, and the other person is back east. Every seven o'clock, every Thursday we talk and we talk about all sorts of things. And I've noticed that we've gone from, you know, being really upset to now actually having some laughs about what's happening because we're feeling like there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And the other thing is that I have a spiritual practice and a meditation that I do that helps me. And Alyssa has asked me to share that. And so at the end of our conversation today, I'll share with you the practice that I use. And it's very, very brief. I modified it from a practice that I had um, learned about with someone else, but it's, it's been modified. And so I'll share that with you towards the end. So I think I'll end with that, Alyssa. Wonderful. Thank you okay. so much. So I'd like to invite all of you back to the screen so we can have uh, informal discussion. The word isn't formal and Zoom don't go well together, but we're going to be talking back and forth about model aspects of institutional resilience and models of that. And so, Robert, we'd love to hear about how to support clinicians. I think our our I think we know so well by now that burn, we started with a context of high burden, high burden and burnout for our providers. So they entered COVID with a state of depletion in many cases. And we also know that we tend to, to treat mental health conditions, including burnout and that, that kind of continuum to depression um, as a individual problem. In a way, we blame the victim, but it's a systemic problem. It's the problem of the workforce and the lack of resources. So I would love to hear your ideas. And I know you've published about this as well. And um, Christina and Maja, I think we can jump in from there to talk also about what we've done at UCSF. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank, thanks again. And uh, I think I think from a provider, frontline provider standpoint, it really has to be incorporate a holistic kind of view, a holistic approach. 
And some of the things that Christina and Amaja mentioned are, are, are outstanding, like uh, foundations for that whole holistic approach. Um, we're talking, we're talking about starting at the personal level with recognizing that, that it's a, indeed an issue. Um, number one, number two, recognizing that, um, that it should not be stigmatized and that you should be, we we're all sort of taught and ingrained in residency that, uh, you have to be like quote strong and that, uh, um, and it, and we have to kind of battle against that thought that expression recognition of this anxiety and exhaustion and burnout is is a point of weakness it's not it's a uh, it, recognizing it is a is a point of strength so um, we talk to our residents and our other and our faculty and, and providers about um, expressing your uh, susceptibility or vulnerability, and and by doing that, you're you're being strong, not weak. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so a lot of the things that you mentioned that that uh, others mentioned, including like uh, spending time outdoors, um, main, maintaining some sense of community that that you could, can uh, on a personal basis. And, and, and then moving up to like departmental things. And so our department and that being the department of emergency medicine, we have, uh, we've had regular sessions to discuss the, the topic of, to- of COVID in our, you know, in our weekly sort of um, co- conferences. Uh, we've had uh, a number of other departmental type uh, programs to to support our our faculty and our our residents and staff uh, and then in moving up from the department it goes to the medical school and UCSF has been wonderful and a lot of the programs that that all of you your the co-speakers in this um, have have uh, set up those are those are great those have been fantastic we we send links um, of those uh, programs to to our residents and our faculty, and um, it's uh, uh, so it's really a pyramid, a, a pyramid of holistic approach, starting with the personal level again, um, moving to the departmental level, moving to the to the um, institutional level of the medical school, and then even further on up into the the national the state and national uh, level. And certainly during, during my time with the advisory advisory team, the Biden Harris advisory board, we, uh, this was, it was, and it remains a, a big issue. They are, are, are looking into um, national type programs of support. So again, my, uh, I view it as a holistic kind of pyramid uh, from personal all the way up to um, a national level of support. Yeah. Beautiful. I, you know, I want, I have so many more questions. Um, have you seen signs of culture change? If you could change, you know, one thing systemically for you and your colleagues, what would it be? 
where's, you know, it's, it still sounds like so much individual work and it is, it's as we've talked about it, you know, daily management for maintaining emotional well-being. Um, but in this strained medical system, there's so much strain at every level, what, you know, whether it's an administrator in a clinic or a frontline nurse or physician, how do we, you know, how do we, besides the individual things, how do we change the culture to be more supportive? I love what you said about reaching out is a sign of strength. Expressing distress is the first step, but but seeking resources, therapy, talking about it is, you know, should be rewarded and applauded and congratulated. But we kind of whisper about it. We still whisper because it's there's a you know, there's still this kind of inherent shame on it. So I, I love that you're changing the culture there. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Masha. I can say a word. Alyssa, one of the things I found out um, from dealing with Katrina is that it's really important that we pay attention to setting up structures that allow people to find the help that they need and to then apply their own individual kind of resources to help themselves heal. Because as many of you know, in in, uh, New Orleans, everything was just flattened. Everything fell apart. And so that it was a matter of trying to just get resources to people. In fact, we were setting up mass units in parking lots to try to get care to people. And it brought home to me the essential and foundational need for mental health care because people have physical problems, but equally people are emotionally and mentally traumatized by disasters like that. And the same thing was happening with COVID. And so one of the things that I think it was really uh, important to do at UCSF and why we developed this program was to set up using principles of equity and access as Mm. guiding principles. We thought we, and clearly we were starting to hear very early on about the significant stress with healthcare workers and essential workers all the way down. We thought it was important to set up a way for people to get mental health care, which on a good day prior to COVID was hard for many people to get. And we said, well, especially for the people that we know are very stressed, we need to set up a system and a structure so that they don't have to think a lot about about where they have to go, that it can be pretty automatic. So that's what we did here by setting up, you know, the web pages and, you know, online access for people. Um, the other thing that we did was divide people up into populations. We took a population health approach saying we know just off the bat we're going to have some populations that are stressed uh, and that that's the primary issue. We don't know uh, about the level of stress at this point, but that's going to run a gamut. But then there's another population of people who are becoming stressed and maybe beginning to have symptoms that are significant enough that they need to be assessed. So that was an area. And then the third group were people who already had been, you know, sort of diagnosed or knew they were suffering with a particular you know, emotional or mental health disorder, and were either having trouble getting care from their regular providers or felt that their symptoms were worsening. So we set up a system where uh, someone would not have to sort of diagnose themselves, but they could go to uh, a a one-stop kind of shop where they could get an assessment through a chat bot and then be directed to materials that would help them. That's sort of a quick overview of that but we thought that that was very very important to do 
And of course, we set up the web page with the support services that you and Christina were so fundamental and foundational in getting that uh, together. And you could both talk about the kind of resources and materials, but that's has been, it's been highly successful. And to date, we've had, yeah. you know, tens of thousands of people who've used it. Yeah. And has it been mostly used, has it been also used by our um, service workers and it's our- It's been used our- by everyone. In fact, some of the, a couple of people have given little testimonials that they've sent my way and, you know, people, uh, rece- one of the receptionists told me that she's been the cope program champion. She tells all her friends about it. And uh, also in some of our hospitality staff have used it very well. And, uh, you know, one of the people who's worked closely with me, one of my assistants finally disclosed to me later that she was one of the first people to use it. So it's been broadly used and brought outside of UCSF. It's been used as well. Yes. And what I love about the program and Maja and your vision for this in the beginning is that exactly that the broad equity lens. And so there's some providers who are clearly on the front lines like you, Robert, you're in the ED or a nurse in the ED. But do we think about the custodial staff? Do we think about the different players that are really on the front line? Like I wouldn't have even thought of radiology as being on the front line, but chest radiology had to be in there. And so just it's the the fact that the program, the COVID the UCSF CODE program was set up to think about the whole population and all employees counted and anybody could enter in and receive basically the services that you, Alyssa, were able to build through the website where you have videos that people could watch to get, you know, um, tools that they could use themselves as they'd like or deal with our kind of as different traumatic events happened deal with those things. So, you know, whether it was the wildfires that you mentioned or political stress or really massive racism, you know, uh, racism events, you know, that happened with the death of George Floyd, all of that contributed to the stress that our community was experiencing. Um, I think that like you were kind of mentioning about culture shift. I mean, I think that this, it, you know, if I was to to, to, to rule everything and, 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 and be able to change how, how organizations function, organizations would have something like them, something like this in each of them. You know, and we have a massive destigmatization campaign would make sure that there was easy access to mental health care should they need it, would be promoting um, self-care and not just among the, the you know, the, the frontline staff and everybody, but also for leaders to show that they, too, you know, you, uh, care and support themselves and get the support they need um, and just have it be much more um, of a focus on our general health and well-being in, in a real sense that includes mental health that's a stigmatized. You know, oftentimes we create this dichotomy between wellness and mental health, which is a false dichotomy, right? Um, but you, you need to have the um, the ability to move up to the level of care that you need. And, and that's, again, what I really liked about COPE is that you could come in and, and get things, you know, not everybody needed to go see a psychiatrist, right? For some of them, they could receive things like we did, I think, Robert, I'm sure in the emergency department, you know, using different town halls where we might meet up with employees and go through, you know, what was hard for you, sharing the stories among each other, sharing what you did to take care of yourselves. Often people can just 
communicating with one another, like Manjo, you were talking about with your friends, just talking to each other, you get little hints, little pearls that might help you. And those things are so valuable. So I think what's exciting is that I think that people recognize because we've been so isolated that, um, that it, it's clear this has had a mental health impact on everyone. Um, it, there's an opportunity now for us to make as a society to really take this, you know, uh, go forward and really yeah. make some to look at the model. Yeah. And the, the other interesting thing is that we we're really piloting a, a brand new modality. You know, telehealth has been around a while, but we've really started to scale it and finding out that it's really very helpful and a successful strategy. Right. Yeah. I want to oh, oh, uh, I, yeah, I I thank all of you personally and on behalf of our department for your development of, of, of those programs. And, and it, it really hit the nail on the head. And in one of our last studies of, of the uh, effects of the pandemic, we looked at uh, not only uh, the, the doctors and nurses, but we looked, we included um, custodians. We included uh, non, we cl- included clerks, people that were not uh, directly in, uh, involved with patient contact and did not have direct patient contact. And, and we found that, that it's pervasive, that yep. in, it's, uh, it's really across the board. Um, it, it also, a uh, little bit surprisingly, um, the, the effects were consistent between this was a national study, but between sites that had a tremendous surges of patients and sites that did not have like these great surges of patients, um, there were, it was really a consistent effect across the board. So I'm glad, uh, that you are opening up these uh, programs to everybody. And, um, you know, regardless of what, whether they're uh, deep in, you know, in uh, a patient care contact or not. Yeah. And I, I think that it really is, I will say, Maja, that is your, had been your vision because that's very different from what they've done in other places. So other places in the country have been trying to deal with this obviously as well, but um, did deal much more with creating programs for faculty or for the physicians. And I think that that makes sense, but it's, but it, um, I understand why those decisions were made, but I, I think it makes much more sense, I guess, to me to approach it from a population health level. And also it's, it's just, it's an equitable thing to do, right? Like yes. you know, you're treating those with the least, with the most privilege, right? The physicians who can go get care that anywhere else and you're prioritizing those. I think the only other thing that I would add to this too is the importance of this supervisor's um, you talked in the beginning, um, uh, Alyssa, about like how the, you know, um, how so much of it has to do with the institution and what the institution does. And I think there is th- something that we worked on a lot is realizing, look, we can't help everybody, right? We can't touch every single human being here. I mean, we can through this, but we could have a big impact if we support the leaders, because just like how, you know, you may know mom's okay, baby's okay, right? The same thing goes 
if your boss is okay or your leader is doing okay and is healthy and and then then employees are are well so if if the employees feel like their boss is actually somebody who cares about their well-being and does things like you know check-ins during meetings you know normalizes seeking care recognizing stress giving people breaks making sure people don't have zoom fatigue these are all things that i'm sure people watching this right. are thinking about for their employees that has a huge benefit for your employee bodies, especially those who are the least privileged in your groups. So I'd like to think about in five years from now, what would you guys like to see maintained and more of, and what would you like to see less of? So I think preparing for our future, looking ahead, we know that this was quite a big earthquake for all of us, but it is going to become more common that because of climate change and other natural, you know, other natural disasters will happen, including zoonotic diseases. So this was, you know, we've learned a lot and we're worn and torn and seasoned, but we forget easily. And we, you know, there's pressure to go back to business as usual. And most of us don't want business as usual. We want a better world and a better system and, and, And now is the time to really be thinking about um, how to be vocal about the changes we want to keep. For those of you listening in your own institutions, it would be great to hear from you what what questions you have about how to implement a a COPE system. Robert mentioned the triangle, and it was specifically is a triangle of a public health model of resources for the community, for everyone, and trying to really push that out town halls and talks for groups who are particularly high risk, um, like our essential workers and frontline providers and, and the individual treatment for those at most at risk or prone to already have mental health issues and, and they were um, at high risk of getting worse. So it's a multi-layered system and there are principles of building a system like that, that, that Maja can, can talk more about, but I would love to, to think about how we are prepared emotionally resource wise and in our, you know, how are we prepared for the next disaster and how are we not prepared? What is your vision? What are your worries? Well, one of the things I think it's um, not an if, but a when in terms of the next uh, pandemic. And we hope that, I mean, we're not really out of this one yet. But I think that we clearly, if you're talking about a disaster preparedness model um, and a broader definition of disaster, clearly we have to have the backup plans in place. So I would hope that if something in five years we had another pandemic, the COPE model could be stood up very quickly. You know, in the same way that we have earthquake preparedness and now hurricane preparedness better. Uh, I think also I would hope that we would take some elements of COPE and make that part of just the regular daily practice in terms of access and equity for people, for emotional, behavioral, you know, mental health issues that are coming up. Because as we know, that's a huge problem everywhere in the world in terms of getting appropriate and adequate mental health access. And so I think had we had that in place, we might not have needed a COPE. You know, so I think that hopefully, you know, we'll start looking at these structures, how you structure care, how you look at communities at risk 
and address that from a global or more uh, national perspective? I completely agree. I think that uh, we need to have a, a, play, a, a playbook ready for, for the next natural disaster in, or the next pandemic or whatever it may come. Uh, uh, it, I think it's also very important to recognize that there, that um, over the past year, coming up on you know more than a year, maybe coming up on a year and a half, it's uh, the concerns and the drivers of stress um, have have evolved, have changed in the fir- in in uh, in our work, um, it, it, which was a, a, you know it's longitudinal. Uh, we found that the, the initial drivers of stress and anxiety were were almost exclusively around PPE. It was a, a, around, you know, the, the issue of PPE and exposure. Whereas later on, other concerns come, came into play as, as, as PPE was built up, concerns about, um, you know, uh, schooling for kids, uh, financial hardships, um, and continued uh, concerns about exposure to their families. So I think it's important that uh, we have a playbook that is um, uh, going to be uh, nimble uh, such that we can kind of adjust for different differences in uh, uh, whatever disaster it may, may come but also differences along the course of the pandemic or disaster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll I'll just add to this. I mean, you mentioned about schools, I think some, so it's, it's not within our locus of control Mm -hmm. as healthcare providers, you know, to, to, um, uh, uh, to, to control the schools, obviously. But I think I would want, if I, you know, again, what I might wish for in five years would be that we would have a really um, robust partnership between um, the, you know, both the healthcare providers and mental health providers in the education system to basically be prepared for this and prepared for the backup for childcare for this, because this is, you know, this is how we all got hit so hard. You know, I think if my, as I mentioned and disclosed before, my husband had had a hit to his work. So he became the de facto person that dealt with a lot of the remote schooling. I had to every so often, but not as much as I would have. And it would have been, it it, it still was difficult for me, would have been even more difficult had that not been true. And so I, I think that needs to be part of the you know, part of it is as far as, you know, we've talked before about um, the women in the workforce and this is part of it as well as elder care. I think those are, you know, that uh, that's who women and the data shows this are more likely to be the caregivers of uh, the elderly as well as of children and do more of the domestic work. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think about a lot is well, first of all, that the the hard solutions and the systemic changes are absolutely critical. We got to keep our eye on the ball. But how we interact with each other is a really big determinant of both stress and support. And the race equity movement opened many people's eyes like they've never been opened before. And and you can't go back once something is seen. Um, it will always be there, and that is. Has happened. It's an opportunity for us to change how we 
treat each other and to understand we're not just individuals, but we're the result of both historical forces and group dynamics that bias our thinking. So what, you know, what's happened in our, um, you know, small group, some of our small groups here is being aware of both race. And if it's not, if it's not about making sure there's equity for our black members, for example, noticing we don't have the black members here at all in the first place, you know, and so there's this, oh my God, that systemic racism thing has such a, you know, a, a long, um, you know, funnel that it's gone through that we don't even, we need to really start back with our youth and our pipeline of for, for real equity. And uh, in our, what I've really appreciated systemically is the messages from the top, you know, Michael Drake's memo saying, peaceful, we respect peaceful protest. People have the right for peaceful protest. Now we know that legally, but to have your institutional leaders state these things, state the, the grief, the support, the mourning. So at every level, I think the trainings that you've done for leaders, Christina, have been a way for all of the different levels of groups, all the way down to someone who's supervising one person or three people to have these create these conversations, building on the structures that are already there of support, of opening up dialogues, of checking in with people. I loved that um, Talmadge King, our dean, just sent a memo saying Zoom meetings should be 50 minutes. Well, we, COPE people, have been saying that for a year now, but to to hear it from him, it was actually implemented in a more systemic way. So that was powerful. So it's those small changes. Community rules for how we interact with each other during meetings are something that happens in very conscious communities and um, communities focused on equity. So, but, but we should all have those rules on at our fingertips and versions of them that work for clinical groups and academic groups, things like um, listening to pe- how to listen to people, how to uh, approach conversations with humility and not make it a, you know, right versus wrong, but to have real listening and dialogue and sharing. Those are not easy skills. No one's, um, most of us aren't trained in those and we could all be, I I think I'll post a link to that on our, on our resource lists. So um, we, any more, we're going to move on to the role of the media, but before we do that, any more comments on kind of keeping up the momentum of the race equity movement? How do we make the changes that we, we see what's needed but making them is so hard and slow. And we all know it's a slow process, but how do we hold on to that momentum? <laughs> I'll go first. This is a, this is a hard, I mean, I think, um, look in, in our, um, I don't think in my lifetime will racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia be extinguished. Right. This is not, you know, this is just um, uh, not reality. However, what and uh, maybe maybe the other speakers feel differently, but I I just um, I don't think that's possible. That said, um, what I do think is possible is I think there's a lot of people who, as you said, Alyssa, whose eyes kind of opened up and are, are more aware. And there's a lot of allies. There's a lot of people who are starting to really think about these things. And I. I believe um, in policies and procedures. Um, and so I'm a big um, a proponent for in, in um, putting in policies and procedures and monitoring data and using those kinds of things. I mean, 
I, I think I definitely think education is important, but um, we have to know that the education can't totally can't get rid of our implicit biases. That it's not possible. So all of us have these implicit biases and they don't go away. And so how they rear their ugly heads is when we're unaware of them at final calls for decisions to select leaders or choose who you're going to employ, whatever. And that's what we have to work against and um, or treating our patients. Right. And so um, I I think what we can take from this is that leaders and frontline staff and everybody, I think any energy that they're putting in to counter, to be more anti-racist and to do good things in our world, I'm going to encourage that. Yeah. Like, I think it's important, but um, I'm I'm a big policy person. So for those in leadership positions, policies. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, the comment that I'd like to make is to say, I think the, the the opportunity and challenge of the moment is to really deal with structural racism yep. and the structures and institutional practices, the systemic things that support racism yep. and, and racist behavior. And I think that's the piece we've always sort of so far in this stage, you know, dealt with it as an individual kind of preference and behavior, but we've learned that they're larger things. So I think moving forward, we're going to have discussions about that. I know that UCSF were having discussions about that, which is how my role came to be, actually. Mm-hmm. So I think that we have a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. to at least plant the seeds of the mitigation and finally elimination of racism and discrimination and bias. Mm-hmm. I'll just offer an example of a search committee I was on where they um, we didn't get any um, underrepresented minority candidates. And so I went back and looked so carefully at all the advertising and networking, and they had done best practices. They had done everything on the book and checked off everything, and it wasn't enough. So our systems have to change, you know, and then there are time pressures. And so, you know, and then a position is filled because of need. And so we, yeah, so I think the, the, the old ways of looking at resumes and recruiting is, is not going to work for us. Yeah, this all has to change. Yeah. We have to look, take a, a different look. Yeah. Well, I, um, I'm going to give a quick answer to the media question, and then we're going to get to sit with ourselves together um, in a final moment of kind of, 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 um, of meditation, spirituality together. Yeah. Okay. A word we often don't use in our medical system. So someone asked about the role of media and I'm going to okay. refer you to our beautiful website. We really do want all of you to utilize our website. We spent months and months and we still update it to talk about the role of, um, of vulnerability and resilience factors. And the media is a big theme on our website. And the, sh- you know, the short story being that it is one way that um, disaster leads to PTSD is overdosing on the images and the media and many sources of media. So, and it's just so important to protect ourselves and our children. And so let's see, Robert, did you have any last comment before we move to sitting? Well, I just, uh, I think that one of my, I guess my last comment is that it's important to uh, chronicle um, our feelings over, over time. Um, I know that from, you know, per, both personal experience and other uh, reading about other people's experience is that you, you will, uh, you know, two or three years from now, you may not, you, you know, it, it, 
things kind of blur into each other. And so it, it uh, I think it's important to chronicle not only our, our personal feelings, but um, about how we were feeling at one particular time during the pandemic, but also for uh, there should be institutional chronicles of, uh, of what happened and going over uh, what went right and what went wrong. So um, I, I, I'm a huge proponent of that. And in fact, um, in getting uh, involved in a, in a, uh, a commission to, to do exactly that. So I think that um, uh, things get, get blurred over time. And so chronic, uh, keeping yeah. a chronicle of, of, of what happened and what felt it's, a, it's an incredible suggestion. You've brought it from the individual level also to a institutional level to do this chronicling. We'll talk more next time about using creative expression and writing for coping with grief and trauma. Maja. Okay, so what I'm going to have to do is shorten this a little bit because I think we only have two minutes, right? Um, we're, why don't we make it... Um, it, do you need four minutes? Uh, I need a little bit more. I'll shorten yeah. it a little bit. so that It's we can fine. I think we can cut off on the tape. We can cut off the beginning. So it's fine to take okay. what we need. Thank you. All right. Okay. So what we'll do is have everyone sit and close their eyes and um, I'll begin. So I relax my mind and my body. I surrender to my own inherent gentleness and I bow to the natural world. I feel calm. I feel connected. I surrender to the mystery. I know that I am a part of the circle of life and that I am of this natural world. May the calm and peace I feel serve as added vibrational calm to our precious world. And now to breathe. I breathe the breath of life. Inhale, belly rises, Ribs expand, exhale, belly softens, ribs and chest soften, soft heart. Inhale, belly rises, chest expands, exhale, shoulders soften, body softens. Inhale, belly rises, chest rises, give thanks. Exhale, soft belly, soft heart, shoulders are water, give thanks. Soles of feet, soft and safe, crown of head, luminous and bright, one shimmering body under the moon and sun, breath of life, one body made of earth, made of stars, made of water, give thanks give thanks so that's the end and this is adapted from a longer meditation that morley does she's a singer and it's morleymusic.org if you want to look that up that's beautiful we we can post that it's a beautiful way to end my body really did change stage just now it's so nice thank you so much have a good day thank you You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.